All right. Let's get back to the scriptures. Now we've worked our way up to Genesis chapter 7 in our trilogy of messages today. The afternoon message, Lord willing, will be the post-Diluvian world. But uh, open the book of Genesis to chapter 7, where we will be covering, Lord willing, verses 1 through 24. And let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank Thee for the, the joy of meeting together with believers of like precious faith on the Lord's day. Lord, we welcome the Spirit of God here to be our teacher we welcome the elect angels who come to join our service. And Lord, we, we pray that we can be a blessing to one another this day. And Lord, bless us today according to our needs, especially as we go through this portion. We pray that Thou would teach us by Thy Spirit and that each one of us would have a, a tender and a teachable heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The preceding chapter accounted for 120 years. And if you've been to that Ark Encounter, you can see why it took that long, because it's a humongous craft where he would have not only had his family but hired a whole bunch of other people to help him build it. They probably thought, this guy's nuts, he's, 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 in, he's insane, but I'm glad to take his money, you know, that kind of thing. So now we're at the end of that period. And Noah, the preacher of righteousness, has no converts. Not one. But he was righteous. Methuselah died at the tender age of 969 years. I can imagine the Social Security were having a party after that. <laughs> no more checks for him. <laughs> But he was righteous. Methuselah was righteous. But now he's on his deathbed. And so now we are in the final week of the antediluvian world. In verse 1 we see God's invitation. Come thou. Now here, remember from Sunday school, when you see something appearing for the first time, sit up straight, take a deep breath, pay attention. It's like when... Uh, our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John says, Verily, verily, that's what's called an asseveration. And that's unique to the Gospel of John. He has lots of those. And that's, you really want to pay attention. Something profound is going to take place. This is like the call of a loving father to his children when he sees a storm coming. And there certainly is a storm coming for these folks. Now notice he didn't say go, but come. And this, as I said, is the first come thou of the Bible, and notice what it is. It's an invitation to salvation, an invitation to deliverance. Just as the last come thou, Revelation twenty two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say come. This call to Noah is a type and a figure of God's call to sinners. Christ is the ark of safety. He's the door, he's the great shepherd, he's many things, is he not? But he is the ark of safety, prepared in whom we can be safe when judgment and death arrive. Now notice he didn't go in 
until God beckoned. He actually didn't enter the ark until verse 13. And notice this precious expression, and all thy house. Praise the Lord for that expression. You know, it's an unspeakable privilege to be in the family of a godly man, to dwell in the safety and the influence of that godly shadow. But each son and wife had to enter voluntarily. Why? Because salvation is an individual responsibility. You know, as you're out calling, and I'm glad to hear you're calling, you know, you knock on doors, and, and you hear a lot of things at the door, don't you? Well, my uncle was a deacon. My grandpa got baptized. My great-grandfather was a preacher. You know, you hear all these things, but they themselves are lost as a goose, you know. But, but they, they try to bring all these things up. Like that gives them some kind of righteousness, I guess. But in Noah's family, there was a ham. And yet he was saved in the ark. Wicked children fare far better for the sake of godly parents. Now, there's no perfect purity this side of heaven. And in Noah's family, there was a Ham. And in Christ's family, there was a Judas. Now, why Noah? He explains, for thee have I seen righteous. He was righteous in evil and desperately wicked times, dangerous times. We think it's dangerous now. I can't imagine living in this world. It's exceedingly unpopular to be righteous, but he was willing to stand alone for God. And that's our challenge in our, in our day. He was righteous by faith, as Abraham was later, Hebrews eleven seven. 7. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and you and I are ugly in sin and depravity, but God deigns to look at us through the filter of Christ. And praise the Lord for that. <clears throat> and what does God require of any man? Righteousness, perfect righteousness, which we can only have by having Christ as our Savior. Now notice the preparation, verses 2 and 3. Animals were received into the ark. He was preserving brute creatures <clears throat> for man's use. He gave man dominion over the earth. He was to take clean and unclean beasts and that distinction was because of sacrifice in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. And notice he took them by sevens, three pairs and one extra for the clean. Because when Noah emerged, his very first act was to offer a sacrifice of every clean beast, chapter 8 and verse 20. He couldn't have done that if there was only one pair. This was similar to the distribution of the days of the week. You'll, as you read these things, you observe that Noah was observing a hebdomadal week, a what? A seven-day week. Six days given us to earthly things, one day for God. You know, I think it behooves us to remember something. What's that? That the Lord's day was written by the finger of God in stone. Think about that. The finger of God in stone. In other words, authority and eternality. <clears throat> now, don't misunderstand. On, uh, on the Lord's Day, you can do matters of ministry. You can do matters of mercy. You can do matters of necessity. If your ox falls in the ditch, you can pull him out. You can pull your, your ox out, Pastor. <laughs> so ministry, necessity, and, and ministry 
But uh, it's not my day of pleasure, let's put it that way. One day for God, the Lord's day. It's not my day, it's the Lord's day. He would have had thousands of individual animals on board. Now, you know, these wags, well, how are you going to get a 150-ton super sword? Well, have you ever heard of a juvenile? (laughs) Animals aren't born 150 tons, but they're, they're born pretty small, you know. And that could have accounted for having those representative species on board. Many juveniles. Now, what's the purpose of preparation? That's found in verse 4. For yet seven days. Now, think about that. This may have been a period of mourning for Methuselah. In chapter 50 of Genesis, in verse 10, Joseph mourned seven days for Jacob. So this could have been that. So for seven more days, the antediluvian world could have entered the ark of safety. But the window of opportunity was closing fast. My brother and I had an upstairs bedroom on the farm. And boy, it gets, you know, South Dakota can get blazing hot in summer and 30 below in the winter. It's just really stark contrast. But we were so grateful. We had a window. Oh, we had a window. We'd open it, but then it would it shut. So we had to put a stick under the stupid thing <laughs> to keep it open. And I, I think of that when I think of this window of opportunity closing fast. This was God's tender mercy and compassion. And you know, all these antediluvians had to do was all you and I have to do. Believe God. Believe Him. And when judgment's a long way off, you're tempted to put off repentance. But when judgment is imminent, being hardened by constant rejection, people fritter away the last seven days also. The story is told of a group of Ph.D. geologists who went over to Nepal, tallest mountains in the world, Nepal. And they hired this local bunch of villagers there, and they had this humongous wicker basket, and they were lowered by ropes and pulleys down the face of this cliff, and they'd take samples, and they did this day by day, and went on for a long, long time. And finally there came a day when they finished the day, and they signals to be pulled up, and nothing happened. And they waited seemingly for this interminable period of time. Finally, they jerked and they were, they were brought up. They got up, well, why didn't you pull us up when we say? Well, and they, they explained, it's been getting harder and harder for the last several weeks. We, we finally couldn't do it. We, we had to go to the village and get extra help. You know, what, what? You know what it was? The weight of the extra rope. The weight of the extra rope. You know, when a person says no to the Lord, it's easier to say no the second time. And then the third time, it's even... And the fourth and fifth time, you can say without even thinking, without batting an eye, you can say no. Be careful how you respond to the gospel, my friend. I don't know you, so I don't know who's saved and lost here this morning, but I hope you don't say no to the Lord because you'll find it easier to say no the second time. So they continued their sensual, violent, selfish complacency until finally it was too late. Now this extra seven days shows that God is slow to anger. Praise God for that, or I'd be a pile of dust. That judgment is not his delight, but he can't deny his holiness. He can't deny his justice. And thirdly, they still have time. pastor can tell you that uh, pastors are called on to go to the hospitals quite a bit. 
and I'll never forget one occasion. I was called to the emergency room, and as I went through the emergency room door, the, the doctor, he's only got a short time left. Oh, okay. And so the best I could, I gave the sweet old, old story that Jesus saves. And that guy raised himself up just as much as he, he was very weak. He said, I'm not ready. What? <laughs> Can you? He said those words just before he passed. It breaks your heart. It really breaks your heart. That some people get so hard that they, they respond that way. But these antediluvians were very concerned and controlled by their body and its appetites. They were concerned about their soul. And Romans, this is right out of Romans 129. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now here we're introduced for the first time in human history. Rain. <laughs> rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now the duration of this rain suggests this unmeasurable, enormous, gigantic amount of moisture in that vapor canopy. It was so thick, you could see light, but you probably couldn't see the sun, moon, and stars. But light would come through, and it was around the globe that way. It was all suspended above the earth, and when that vapor canopy was caused to collapse and condense and fall to the earth, it was something else. Now, stay with me here. If Mount Everest was at its present altitude, okay, that's an if. To cover Mount Everest in 40 days, a combination of rain and subterranean aquifers, because remember, not only did rain fall from the vapor canopy, or water from the vapor canopy, but also there was artesian wells that suddenly began all over the, the face of the earth. So it was coming up from the bottom and coming down from above. A combination of that rain and subterranean aquifers would have had to accumulate at the rate of 725 feet per day, 30 feet per hour, 6 inches per minute. So in 6 inches, you'd be up above your ankles. That's heavy rain. <laughs> in fact, that's torrential rain. Catastrophic, cataclysmic conditions. Now, you're good Bible scholars. We're going to look at another hermeneutical principle. Notice the days, 40 days. Israel wandered 40 days of years in the wilderness. The scouts remained 40 days in Canaan. Elijah fasted. 40 days in the wilderness. The Ninevites were given 40 days to repent. Christ fasted 40 days before temptation. Christ was 40 days on the earth after the resurrection. So let's distill that down. 40 days is a period of trial ending in victory for the good and disaster for the evil. That all is comprehended in that expression, 40 days. And notice every living substance. Every creature that was on the dry earth, 
And as I said in Sunday school, even some of the marine creatures would have perished because of the violence of the flood. Verses 5 and 6, notice obedience. Noah obeyed this final test as he'd been doing for the last 120 years. No surprise there. He was now a youngster of 600 years. <laughs> as his physical age increased, so did his moral fortitude. And 6 is the symbol of suffering. The sixth seal, the sixth trumpet and vial, all introduce critical periods of affliction in the Bible. Now let's go to verses 7, 8, and 9 where we see the population of the ark. Verse 7, Noah and his family. When he went in, because no, I, I, I don't know about you, but in my mind's eye, I picture a constant crowd at the ark because it was so unique. I imagine a lot of the antediluvians were there, you know, mocking, joking, jeering, making fun of Noah, making all their offhand comments. And so when he finally went in, in verse 13, we're not there yet, but no doubt his neighbors, oh, oh, he did it. I told you he was demented. <laughs> you know, they'd be convinced of his dementia. But his entrance into the ark condemned the world. And he went in with no clouds. Now, there's a vapor canopy, but no clouds. No thunder, as our Norwegian neighbors would have said, no tunder. <laughs> no tunder, no lightning or other warnings. Everything was serene and clear. It had never rained. He prepared in faith, and now he entered in faith. And notice, each son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, only had one wife, despite the crucial need for repopulating the earth. I could just see a sociologist say, those boys need to have 35 wives apiece for crying out loud they need to repopulate the earth. Well, God's plan is still one man, one woman, until one of us die. That's God's plan. God loves to save whole families. He's not going to accept situation ethics like that. So the world was winnowed. No farmers winnow. Now, of course, now we use combines. <laughs> you know, in our <laughs> family altar, we would teach our boys, especially about the strange woman, you know. At one time, we were going across uh, South Dakota there with the boys and, the, and all the family in the back of the van. And my one boy says, Look, Dad, a concubine. <laughs> no, son, you, you, you've got the wrong idea. <laughs> it's a combine. It's a combine. It's. That, that's two different concepts. <laughs> I didn't know what to make of that. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> but the world was winnowed with mountains of chaff, eight kernels of corn. This is a dramatic difference. Now, in verses 8 and 9, this gets rather dramatic. What do you suppose his onlooking neighbors and friends and relatives thought? As all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, this zoological parade of animals appeared walking toward the ark. Now, the ark only had one door, so therefore, because it was above water level, it would have had a ramp. All these animals 
guided by an unseen providential hand, appeared from out of nowhere and calmly walked up that gangway into the ark. I can just imagine some of those neighbors. Have you seen this before? No. Neither has my grandpa. I've never even heard of such a thing. You don't suppose that what he's saying, no, that's not true. He's crazy. Don't listen to him. I don't know what this means, but I've never seen it before. But that unseen hand brought them. All the species were created and then preserved. Not one left behind. And they entered the ark. And I could just see Sam Hammond's eighth with the inside. Right here, Mr. Rhinoceros, there's your quarters. Yes, sir, Mr. Raccoon, right, right there. And don't bother the rhinoceros, please. <laughs> Verses 10 through 17, the record of 40 days of rain. It came to pass. Now, don't misunderstand that vague statement. This is not a fortuitous concurrence of circumstances. <laughs> This is God's providence and his sovereign plan, all being worked out. Enoch had prophesied the judgment of the ungodly. His son Methuselah showed the patience of God in his long life and died just before the cataclysm. Noah preached it for 120 years while he built the ark in the sight of the world, which rejected and ridiculed that man and his family endured a lot of abuse. Noah held steadfast to the end with no precedent to encourage him. You and I have the local church. Praise God for the local church. Where we can come and it's like a breath of fresh air, isn't it? It's just we can encourage one another and build each other up in the faith. It's just such a blessing. But he had no local church. He had his family, but that was it. But he had the Lord, he had the Spirit of God, he had the grace of God, and Noah held steadfast to the end. Now the flood didn't start until he and his family were safe inside. And so now, now, God's waiting for his last saint to be saved out of every tribe and nation and people group before the deluge of fire. That's what we're waiting for. Now here in verse 11, according to the Bible, it's the 600th year of Noah's life. On this exact date, this became history. On this one particular day, the antediluvian world came to an end. It would have been about November 6th on our calendar, <clears throat> so he would have had a, a harvest with which to provision the ark. But the deluge didn't begin until he was inside and the door was shut. God provides for the security of his own. Remember what the angel said to Lot, Hasty thither, I can't do anything until you're out of here. Revelation 7, 3, The winds are held until the servants of God are sealed. And when good men are removed, judgment, Isaiah 57, 1, is at the door. They're taken away from the evil to come. And where they're hidden in the grave, in the ark of safety, in heaven, then God comes to punish. Now, according to verse 11, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. God had laid up vast storehouses and quantities of water and deep storehouses, Psalm 33, verse 7. 
and he loosed them. Geysers suddenly appeared everywhere, all over the landscape. He set bars and doors for the waters to not cover the earth, Psalm 104, verse 9, Job 34, verses 9 through 11. Then he removed those bars, and all of a sudden, water was everywhere, probably in combination with volcanic eruptions of immense magnitude, you know, Krakatoa's all over the globe, tremendous pressures forcing up clouds of particulate matter, which would have condensed the vapor canopy or helped to do so. Windows of heaven were opened. That's the cataracts or sluice gates. Job 26, verse 8, the waters were bound up in thick clouds and then loosed by God. There would have been torrents of rain, unequaled in quantity. Never, never a rain like this rain. Forty days and forty nights, verse 12. God made earth in six days, but it took 40 days to destroy it. He's slow to anger. But when judgment begins, it's very complete. God makes what is to be a blessing, water, a curse. Psalm 69, 22, that which should have been for their welfare became a trap. <clears throat> now in verse 13 through 16, you see in verse 13, he finally enters the ark with his family. <clears throat> this was the actual day that he and his family entered in. Verse 14, all the creatures had entered now, docile, compliant. It, it wasn't a situation where Noah said, Shem, catch that crazy zebra, he's getting away. That, that didn't happen. All guided by that unseen providential hand walking into the ark. Verse 15, Noah didn't have to catch the animals. The earth had not yet been divided. All the continents were rear enough to arrive by land bridges and by foot. You know, only man is more stupid than an animal. <laughs> I'm sure you've read this. You're aware of this. <clears throat> but just before a natural disaster takes place, like an earthquake or something like that, the animals of the woods are running. They're, they sense something's going to take place. They're running. Verse 16, God, Elohim, commanded... Now, here you see capital G-O-D, and you see capital L-O-R-D. G-O-D is Elohim. Capital L-O-R-D is Yahovah, Jehovah. If you were a Hebrew, and you're reading along in your Hebrew script, and you see Yahovah, you wouldn't pronounce that. You wouldn't say that. You would say, Elohim, you would say Adonai, Adonai, because it was too sacred for them to pronounce. They, they called it the Tetragrammaton. That'll be on your test at the end of this service. <laughs> but the Redeemer shut him in. This is the equivalent that we have in a chapter 4 of, verse 30 of Ephesians 4.30 of being sealed by the Holy Spirit. So Noah was not only saved, he was safe and secure. God shut him in. He couldn't have opened the door. Because God shut the door, closed and excluded and sealed, sealed. So the hand that secures the saint destroys the sinner. And this door became a partition between he and the world outside. For seven days, they could have entered, but not now. I can't prove this, but I just have a notion when, when God shut that door, 
I think he slammed it. I don't know what Pastor thinks, but uh, I, I think all, everyone that was there looking on, the neighbors, I imagine that would have been very startling to them. What do you suppose they were thinking as God's hand shut that door? The old world now is forever dead to them as soon as that door was slammed shut. You know, you and I cannot finish our redemption. And, and uh, that's why I don't think when, when he crafted this ark with his family and others that he hired, I don't think he built handholds on the ark. <laughs> Have you ever heard someone say, hold on, brother? Well, that doesn't apply, my friend. You and I cannot finish our redemption. There's no, there's no hanging on to the ark. We've got to rest in God's promises. There, there's no handholds. And now for the world of sinners, hope was gone. When God shuts the door, no one else can enter. And you know, that's so sad. When you, like that story I told you about, when you, when you see someone die rejecting Christ, it's, oh, it just, it's so sad. Verse 17, judgment. The same waters which destroyed the earth buoyed up the ark, no one his family to safety. The same judgment sweeping down on Christ brought death to Christ rejectors and life to Christ receivers. In the ark, Noah was surrounded by judgment waters which showed God's hatred of sin, but he himself and his family were safe. Lifted up above the earth, and if you've ever visited the ark encounter, you can see those humongous timbers that they used to build that thing. And I could, if, if I were there, I could, I could have just, when that suddenly became buoyant, I imagine those timbers were screaming, brother, <laughs> as that thing, you know, torqued and twisted and finally became buoyant on top of the water. So let's say, let's say you and I are in the Goodyear blimp, okay? We're, we're looking down on this. And we would see this vast shoreless ocean with these humongous rolling waves. But on the surface, like a cork, would have been this ark with its precious cargo. When the waters arrived, they probably thought, well, his neighbors, I've never seen this before. I'm sure it won't last long. (laughs) You know, six inches per minute, 30 feet per hour, 725 feet per day. The rain on the roof of that ark probably sounded like pitchforks and hammer handles. I I can just imagine when they heard the first lightning, Mrs. Noah, what was that? (laughs) Hearing lightning for the first time, that would be rather alarming. Now, in verses 18 through 24, the first shepherd prevailing, the ark is floating. The ark went upon the face of the waters, that creaking and groaning of those timbers as that gigantic vessel became buoyant for the first time on the water. And it was borne by a gentle motion. It, it was driven and tossed yet, but it wasn't violently driven and tossed. Why? Marine engineers tell us why. Its precise dimensions made for its greatest stability. What a stroke of luck, (laughs) as John Calvin would say. (laughs) Verse 19, the waters prevailed, strong, mighty, prevalent, despite opposition. Water would build up here and there, and and at the end of this valley, nothing would have withstood it. If you... Went to Arizona, and you went to the Grand Canyon. 
I don't know if you've ever been there, but uh, let's say you went the extra mile and you took a boat trip down the Colorado, down at the bottom. And your park ranger would dutifully tell you, see all these strata? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That took millions and millions of years. That's what he would tell you. Because that's what he's been trained to say. When was Mount St. Helens? 1981? Something like that? Mount St. Helens up in the Pacific Northwest? The equivalent of the Grand Canyon was formed in two days. Two days. Where you see all the strata on top of each other. It didn't take millions and millions of years. Tsunamis would have gone around the world twice a day at 100 miles an hour. Waves produced by earthquakes have been measured at 430 miles an hour, six miles high at the equator. And thunder was heard for the first time, or it's startling. Now, I don't know about you, but I've tried to picture in my mind's eye the antediluvians. All those that had mocked and jeered and made fun of Noah and his family. Outside, they're sloshing around in the water, screaming, Let us in! We believe you now! Let us in! Climbing as the waters rose six inches per minute. Verse 19, the second step of prevailing, the hills were covered. All the high hills covered under the whole heaven. Now, notice that expression. Under the whole heaven. If you would get a Ph.D. in geology in a secular university, you would be taught precisely against what you're learning this morning. (laughs) They, They have no room for the biblical account of the flood. They say it was a local flood. But notice that expression. Under the whole heaven. As we sit here this morning, there are 270 flood stories of the people groups of the world about the flood because it was universal. It took 150 days to reach the greatest depth and then 275 days to recede. There was no means of escape, no hope, no refuge. I don't want to appear to be mean, (laughs) but I want to be clear. No one can climb above the judgment of God. No one. When hope and mercy are rejected, it brings inescapable judgment. God's grace and mercy has limits. Verse 20, the third step of prevailing, the mountains are now covered. Fifteen cubits upward. Now, why did the Lord do that? Why did he get to the highest mountain, which I don't know if it was Mount Everest or not at that point, but let's say it was. The waters are going to be 15 cubits above that. God measured the exact depth. The approximate draft of the ark were about 23 feet above the highest mountain. So if it wouldn't go over Mount Everest, it wouldn't wouldn't do that. It'd go over in the water. So the higher the waters increased, the higher the ark was lifted toward heaven. The more danger, the more protection. Sanctified afflictions can be spiritual promotions. You know, as I read Genesis 22, 
where Abraham is ordered by the Lord to sacrifice his only son. I just shake my head as it would I have done that? I haven't asked Pastor this question, but I'm pretty confident how he would answer me. In that story in Genesis 22, there was a prominent figure that was alive at that time who was missing from that story. Who was that? Lot. Lot was so worldly, so carnal, he could never have withstood that kind of a test. And as I've thought over the decades, God loves to give his greatest saints the deepest valleys. Just think about that sometime. It covered at least the mountains of Ararat, the highest of which is 17,000 feet. And if the mountains were at the present altitudes, the water was 29,028 feet plus 23 feet to get over the top of Mount Everest. Verses 21 through 24, we learn about all the destruction. All flesh died and every man Dr. Henry Morris, who co-authored the Genesis Flood, postulates that there was not only billions, but perhaps trillions of people in the antediluvian world. Because they did live, you know, 500 years. They were fertile as a turtle. You know, they had lots of kids. So that, you know, who am I to argue with him? You know, that guy was brilliant. They, They would send him out to debate evolutionists. I felt sorry for the evolutionists. Every man, woman, and child died on the earth. And what terrors and and consternation was to come upon them as the waters rose so steadily. I I don't know about you, but I've I've tried to put myself, you know, what were they thinking? What were they doing? What were they saying when all this took place? Well, we have an eyewitness, not an eyewitness, but a spiritual eyewitness. We do, yes, Dr. Luke. In chapter 17 and verse 26, they, the Antediluvians, were eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, until that day. In other words, this happened by surprise. They drowned in their false security. They were deaf and blind to all of God's pleadings and warnings. So death surprised them. They started to see and feel that which they would not believe and fear. Some by this time, probably on trees and mountains and hills, the strongest among them would would have taken longer for them to die. Clinging to the ark, some of them, let us in, let us in. Crying out to Noah now was futile because God had sealed the door. There's, There's no way to comprehend the the anguish and the hideousness of this terror. It's a standing warning to careless, rebellious, thoughtless sinners. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. All the air breathers that day died. Thousands falling on his left, thousands on his right. But he was a trophy of mercy. It's possible he and his wife and family heard the shrieks and the screams outside of his dying neighbors. The waters reached their highest point after 150 days, which included 40 days of rain. It took five months to start abating, but God was purifying his earth. Some who died 
would have helped Noah build the ark. Think about that. Some who've helped others to heaven will not be going there themselves. What are you talking about, preacher? I'm talking about the parable of the tares. That's one of our Lord's more serious and sobering parables. There is a plant that looks just like wheat. It's called darnel. Don't eat it. It'll be bad for you. But it looks just like wheat in the early stages until harvest. Then it looks different. And the Lord Jesus said, I'm going to send the angels to take all the darnel, all the false wheat, out from among the good wheat. I preached a funeral one time, Pastor, that uh, at the conclusion of that service, the Sunday school superintendent got saved. And more than one preacher has gotten saved. More than one missionary has gotten saved. Judas went out with the 70, preached sermons perform miracles by the the authority of God. John Wesley preached to the American Indians in the southeastern part of our country as a lost man. His heart was strangely warmed in Aldersgate in England when he finally did get born again. But some who've helped others to heaven will themselves be in hell. It's a sobering thing to think about. Sin offers the wages of Pleasure, profit, but the actual wages are death, torment, and destruction. It's absolutely impossible to escape God's judgment. He used heaven and earth against the rebel and the Christ rejecter and the one who lives as if God doesn't exist. And in this destruction by water, he gives a preview of the final destruction by fire in 2 Peter 3. It's our duty to come the way of safety God has provided no matter how nonsensical it might seem. Now, you're on a road out here. And I can just imagine when some people go by and they see the cars, I can just see, here's some of them. Stupid people. That's foolishness. And it is foolishness to the lost soul. It is. Noah had to suffer the ridicule, the torment, the all the mocking of his peers, the loss of his possessions, confinement on the ark to be preserved for the new world. And my friends, believers, will suffer until you're glorified. The enormity of the flood, its testimony of the awfulness of sin, the reality of divine judgment, it's disturbing to our hearts. I don't know about you, and I don't like to think about some of these things. Many attempt to explain it away or ignore it. But you've got to believe that there's an infinite danger to come and then the only remedy to escape it, and that's through the ark of safety, our Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment of sin by a thrice holy personal creator is a reality. Enoch and Noah had no visible results from their ministry, and yet the Bible says they pleased God. In the 1970s, Bible believers went through a horrible stage. It was called numbers. 
Numbers, 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 numbers. And it brought a lot of lost people into churches. My friend, God's criteria of judgment is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Even with no results, are you faithful? Though Noah labored in obedience for 120 years, if he had disobeyed in the last seven days, he would have drowned. You've got to persevere until the door is shut. Now, I'm going to give you three facts, and then I'm going to quit. Eight flood survivors from approximately 4,500 years ago, I believe in an early earth, I don't know about you, not an old earth, produced 7 billion people by the year 2011. Those boys didn't need 35 wives apiece. Second, a study of mitochondrial DNA, that's, if you're not aware, that's the mother's or the maternal DNA, have shown that the mitochondrial tree has three nodes or branches. Everyone alive today has one of those three unique ancestral maternal sequences. In other words, all of us here and everywhere on planet Earth has come from one of the wives of Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is a striking intersection of biblical history and human genetics. And then, Scripture informs us that there were 100 generations from Adam to Christ. 100 generations from Christ to the present. Do you suppose we're close to the end? Yes. 